Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999, and I created this podcast simply to share the message of the big book. It completely changed my life. It always changes my life, and I hope it can help change yours. I'm Carly, recovered alcoholic. Welcome to North Star Big Book Podcast. I actually am so excited today because I am on with an oldie but goodie. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, everybody. My name's Jen, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jen. What's your sobriety date? August 4th of 1997. Okay, that's crazy because that was the year I graduated high school. Me was too. That the year you <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. She's not Jen to anyone I but know. She's yes. not Jen. She's Jen everywhere else, but she's just Jenny. She's Jenny from the yeah. blocks and me. And yeah. <laughs> Jenny and I want to give a little intro where we know each other from because I'm doing this awesome series now where I get to interview episodes of big book lovers who share mm-hmm. part of the book they love and from all over the world. And Jenny and I got sober in the same place. You were how much you had two more years than me. Okay. I came back from OU. My mom picked you out as my sponsor. I remember this period of time. Bev was like, Carly. I remember your mom talking about you. Here's here's what I always tell parents who are listening. If you have a sponsor in mind for your teenager that is coming into sobriety, don't tell them. I agree. That's like your mom picking out your prom dress. Right. So you were saying that to Becca, right? And you were like, hi, so nice. And Becca like wouldn't speak to me or look at me. And I was like, I'll take her because I didn't want what my mom wanted for me. And look who's sitting here today. So we get to, and I remember I have this great memory. I don't know if you know, remember this at my, one of my apartments, we were sitting down listening to some big book studies, Mm -hmm. like scribbling in our book because we were starving for the book because we had both been taken through the same way. And then we couldn't find anyone anymore to take us through. Yeah. It's so interesting. So true. Yeah, when I remember, um, I worked with a woman, Amy, who was in the midst of going through the big book with a group of guys uh, at the time, which, you know, that was at the time, you know, she was really- Oh, it's really still tabbing like, I promise you, it happened <laughs> yes. to me. Yes. Yeah, but I really benefited from her, you know, because I think at the time, and, and maybe it's not the case, this is my limited view as a 17-year-old or 18, 19-year-old in AA at that time, is it, it seemed like- there were no women talking about the big book. It was just the men. And, and Amy had the opportunity to go through the big book. And she, you know, was just a little bit further along, but shared her experience, strength and hope. And that was really my, I was terrified of Amy, of course, because she was uh, scary. She still she is. Was scary. She scary. <laughs> I love her. Um, but she really um, sh- taught me so much about the big book and, and about a love for the big book. But it started really with your mom, actually. There's a Tuesday night, Joe yes, and Charlie. And Ruth. Ruth Arnott, yes, Ruth. Seltzer, blah, blah, blah. And Joe and yes. Charlie, right? She was my first sponsor. Ruth, yes. I remember. Yeah, she was my, my first sponsor. My mom brought me to Ruth's sickbed once to yell at me when I was new. I mean, <laughs> these women are so, I mean, we, I can picture us at Tuesday Fairmont and all the women that stood before us that just they held the doors open and, and you're right. I think that your, your perception was not wrong. There was not a lot of women talking about the big book and today there are, there's an yeah. army of them. And Which is awesome. it's so exciting because remember how hard it was. You had to sponsor everyone because 
everybody wanted the solution once they finally yeah. tried everything else. And then you're like, okay, I'll take everybody. <laughs> but now yeah. we don't have to. And it's true here too. And, in, in, you know, I moved to Maryland just outside of DC and I was worried, you know, cause it's just, I had this way, Cleveland Heights, you know, East yeah. side of Cleveland. And uh, there are a lot of big book lovers here too. A lot. And I, I learned so much here when I, when I moved to Maryland. I, from my, I want you from to tell sponsor. them to get on my podcast. Cause I love interviewing strangers that become real friends and finding, you know, what's so funny is my husband's not an AA and he said, I just don't understand why it's so hard for you guys to find people that love the big book since that's your textbook. And I'm like, it's a long story. Like, right. <laughs> God forbid we should like our textbook. So speaking of our textbook, tell me yes. what we're doing and why you chose them. Oh, it was, this was like a really hard homework assignment because, you know, when I got to AA, I found the big book, I mean, just really hard to read. And, and also I considered myself to be an educated person, which is hilarious since I essentially stopped going to school at the age of 12, but um, because I was too interested in drinking and using drugs, but, um, but you know, there are so many challenges in the big book, but I love in terms of vocabulary, but I love so much of it. But what I really kind of honed in on was a part of more about alcoholism, I think 33 through 37. I cannot wait. Take us there. <clears throat> yes. Take us there. And um, you're so right, though. I find that when you read the big book by yourself, if you don't know how to read it, it's boring. Oh, yeah. It's horribly totally. written. It's stupid. But what comes alive is when one of us does it with another, which is how they designed it. It's designed yeah. to be one with another. So start yes. us off. All right. So at the top of 33 says, uh, this case contains a powerful lesson. And, and just quickly, it's talking about one of the, it's the first of four vignettes in more about, uh, more about alcoholism that focuses on the, the mental part of the disease. And, it's my, um, it was my <laughs> scariest story that I ever read in the big book when I started reading about how he is so just to give it a little background. He it's this guy that was like 25 or 35. Yeah. yeah and he, he was 25 or 35. He realizes he's got a problem with drinking. So he decides to stop drinking, which is an exceptional thing to do. He um, is successful in business. As soon as he retires, he picks up a drink. Yep. He can't stop drinking. He ends up in the hospital, hospital, hospital. And within four mm -hmm. years at 59, he dies yeah. of alcoholism. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is a terrifying, cause you know, I think it takes away, um, you know, I hear all those stories about your, your disease is doing pushups out in the parking lot. I hear from so many people who've relapsed who say, not only is it not like they ever stopped, but it's like their disease progressed. And when they picked up again, it was as if, they've been, you know, drinking the whole time and it had just gotten so much worse, so much faster. And this is such a great example of that. So we've just read that in the big book. Um, and, and it's a great lesson, but I had to narrow it down. That's why we're, we're not reading that story. Uh, but most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. And for me, this is, this, what we're gonna read is all about the peculiar mental twist of the lies that I believe um, that I don't have, you know, the insanity, um, that I don't have power over believing that on my own. If I don't have a defense against that, I will always believe these lies about my alcoholism, which is like, if I can stop drinking for a period of time, that must mean I'm not an alcoholic and I can have a drink again. Which our listeners know is the mental obsession. And yes. they hear me talking about it all the time. Um, and it's what one of my members of my home group says, it's the most reasonable sounding voice in his head. It doesn't say crazy things. It, it's slowly, gently, 
And, you know, it's ironic here, we, we, we won't mention any names, but the two of us are sitting here and there's a missing person that we're both missing. And of my many sponsors, four of my sponsors drank after 10 plus years of sobriety. And so that exact sentence, most of us believe that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink. It's, we believe it in our minds and we pick up alcohol sober. There's no alcohol in our body when we pick it up. Exactly. That is such an important part. That's why I love this part because it's the first time that I started to realize that uh, my disease didn't stop with, with putting down a drink, that it actually got worse for me after I stopped drinking. Me too. Um, That's because you're a real alcoholic because real alcoholics, when you stop drinking, they, they want to kill themselves. Oh yeah. That was me like nine months sober yeah. um, before I found the solution. Um, so, but here is a man who at 55 years found he was just where he'd left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. And here's the truth. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I used to hear things like a cucumber. Once it becomes a pickle, it can't go back to being a cucumber. You know, as alcoholics were pickled. So many cute <laughs> little comments. <in> that. <laughs> um, commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. Um, and I have that highlighted and underlined because I think at the time I was really uncomfortable with this because I really, I couldn't imagine my life without ever so drinking. So young, right. Imagining yeah. what we're going to do when we get married. We always go to that. What about our yeah. wedding? That's champagne. Right. Like that's the only time. And right. <laughs> How am I going to do this? We go from yeah. wanting to die to what am I going to do on Saturday night? Right. But I also couldn't imagine going on the way that I was going. So I, I felt like I was, I was at least willing to keep going, knowing that I couldn't continue drinking the way that I was drinking. I just right. didn't know what the answer was. If we could have, we would have, because why would you come here? A hundred percent. This was last, last, last yes. house on the block for me. Yes. Um, young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop as he did on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired will find he can win out. Several of our crowd men of 30 or less had been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. That that's a really great one um, for me too. Again, as a 17 year old, I mean, I, I, first went to, my introduction to AA was through treatment at the age of 16 in, in 1996 at a local wonderful treatment program there that I still love so much because they introduced me to, to AA. But I felt like I was, A, going to meetings with people who were 150 years old, who were <laughs> probably as old as I am now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also, um, you know, I really, this was one of my comparing out things that I had to really work on. And thankfully, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is such a gift in that way. Because I, in especially at Cleveland Heights, Shaker Heights, in that time period, there was this group of young people who, who were all getting sober around the same time, really serious about being sober. And it was like, I was seeing myself in these other people who'd only been drinking for five, six years, um, not like somebody who got sober with like 20, 30, 40 years right. of drinking under their belt. What was so cool about that group um, is the group was serious. They were all into the book and the steps and we very much supported our recovery journey. We also were serious about having a lot of fun. But when For you look sure. around at who's left, 
there are not a lot of numbers. Like I could probably yeah. count on less than two hands who's left. Definitely. And yeah. it says a lot. I mean, it's in what happens, what they promise in the book later, about among them, you, may, you will make lifelong friends. Like me and you can go five or six years without talking and we just pick up because not only do we have the common problem, we have a common solution. solution. And there's this, mm -hmm. this um, connection because we both, we both were there, right? We right. were there and we walked through it and we're here together and like, we're still here. Yeah. Like, I know, like, I know for you and me, we want to be those old ladies that they're like, oh, don't talk to them. They're so scary. And <laughs> they eventually come to us because we're finally the ones that they know have the solution. Yeah. I definitely want to be old in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to yeah. want to be old, old on a porch smoking all kinds of things, but yeah. now I want to be old <laughs> in AA. Um, okay. <laughs> to be, uh, to be gravely affected, uh, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time nor take the quantities some of us have. I have rejected that to die an alcoholic death. That's the, that's the, what they're saying. If you want to die an alcoholic death, it doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah, or how much you've been, been how much you drink. I think that's, you know, it's like those aren't the qualifiers for alcoholism. Nope. This is particularly true of women. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms see large numbers of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try and get them to see it. Um, and then there's a little footnote that says, true when this, this is the third edition of the big book, by the way. So me too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but there's a little comment that says, true when this book was first published about women and young people, but a 1998 U.S. Uh, Canada membership survey showed that about one-eighth of AAs were 30 and under. Just so you know, the page you're about to read on 34, I always tell yes. everyone that you're the part you're going to get to is the loophole for people who do not have to do the work. So when, we, when you take us there, I'll point that out. If you, if you can pass this part of the test, you don't have to do any of the work. All right. I think I know what that is. As we look back, <laughs> we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. Um, and I just want to pause there for a moment because there's a, a little test in here, the big book somewhere else that always gets a lot of, of attention about uh, trying some controlled drinking. And this is a very different kind of test, which is try leaving alcohol alone for a year. This um, is the mental never... obsession test. Yes. I it's would so refreshing to have someone take me through the book who has the exact same things because we <laughs> went through it together. And so this is the test. So like if, if you're afraid to try the physical allergy test to see if you can drink and stop, yeah. this one does not kill yeah. anyone unless you kill yourself. This one is try to not drink and see yeah. how you do. And that's what my mom did to me. She didn't say a year because I would have been like, you're crazy. She said <laughs> three weeks. And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, I can do yeah. things. And yeah. I found that I could. And you know what right. happened to me during those three weeks? I wanted to kill myself. Right. Miserable. I didn't know that I couldn't, that I didn't know what was going to happen in my, in, in my mind. I didn't know it was called a mental obsession because no one told me. I just knew mm -hmm. I was crazy. And my mental obsession told me the lie. See, your problem isn't alcohol because you yeah. did it. And you're worse without it. So that's not your real problem. So have another drink. Right. Which by the way, is, is always what I tell women I, who I sponsor who are binge drinkers, because I, I always say they're in much worse shape than, than 
us who drink daily because you can, it's so easy to see the chaos of your life when you're drinking or using daily, but a binge person has all these episodes of control in between. Um, so I'm with you hundred percent. I'm always oh, looking so out for those folks. Yeah. So if he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there's scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remain sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions. That would be me. Most of them within a few weeks. I would forget. Right. I would forget that I made it. And like, I'd be like doing some sort of side dish and somebody would be like, Carly, you said you were going to be sober. And I was like, oh, I totally forgot. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. Like I, it was just normal. Yeah, right. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. And I, I usually like to ask people at this point, do you want to stop altogether? It's important because we just assume that they ask us for help that they even want to stop. Because if they right. don't want to stop, we need to stop and say, no judgment, go drink. Right. Do your thing. We're here yeah. for you. Yeah, if you make it back. Yeah. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. And that for me is uh, step one, is that I've lost the power of choice when it comes to drinking. I, 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 the only defense against that for me is a relationship with higher power. Right, which I cannot get on my own. I have to do the steps in order to get there because yes. I'm so blocked off. Mm -hmm. But for me, yep. that's the loophole right there. So I, I wrote down like what you said, lost the power of choice. I wrote in big letters, loophole. And I wrote on the side, can you choose not to drink? If you're able to choose when you're going to mm -hmm. drink and when you're not, then you don't have to work the steps. If you are not able to choose, if you say, Jenny, I'm not going to drink and you're not able to follow through on that promise, yeah. Unfortunately, that means you're going to probably have to do the steps. But if you're yeah. able every single time to choose, don't work the steps. It's a waste of your time. Yeah. That little, that little quiz they have in the big book about, you know, when you say you're going to stop, but you find you can't. Or when you say, That's my yes. Favorite. Yeah. I love that. It's such a simple little test. I always tell I... people if you're at a meeting and I, I haven't, unfortunately, because they're all virtual, it's not the same. But when you're at a meeting, I hear sometimes someone will be like, they're new and they're like, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, but they say I am if I am. So I'm just going to be one. And I always stop and I'm like, it's my responsibility to literally take them to that page and be like, do you have two minutes? Because I can help you figure out if you are in two minutes. So you don't have to go to me. I'm like, I don't want to go to a Gamblers Anonymous meeting if I'm not a gambler. Like somebody help me out if I'm in the right. wrong place. Right. Yeah. I love that. I'd be scared of you if you were coming up to me as a newcomer. You've made it. All right. Um, many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So we're believing that lie. And you know what? When you just read that sentence, yet we found it impossible, you know, sometimes you just hear a sentence and you're like, oh my God, I've never heard it like that. Yes. I recently went back last weekend to my old stomping grounds of OU to see mm -hmm. where I, I saw tried those. to see my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that feeling of it being impossible. 
And not just that night, just all the time, every day, everything felt impossible. Like mm-hmm. assignments I forgot, calls I couldn't return, mail that was coming, like people asking me to do something and me forgetting. Everything just felt impossible. Like I felt like it was all too much. Like my chest had so much weight on it and I couldn't breathe. And that's why we seek alcohol because it takes us, it, it calms that imperious urge, right? It calms yeah. us down alcohol wasn't my problem it was my solution i just totally. needed a new solution i do i did and i <laughs> thankfully got one how then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us the experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. So this again is just referring back to, uh, you know, a really painful, painful experience for me is recognizing that I was uh, in a, a much more sort of insane place in my life once I stopped drinking because I, I didn't have a solution for that mental obsession. Did you ever um, relapse after you got sober? I did. Yeah. I, I feel really lucky that it, it wasn't a, like a long uh, kind of hamster wheel or revolving door. But yeah, my, my first sobriety day was October 2nd of 1996, the day after I got to treatment because on the day I went to treatment, I was drunk. Right. Um, and then how long did you, um, when did you drink again? So I, I stayed sober from October and then I don't know the actual dates, but I graduated from Shaker Heights High School, I think on a Tuesday. From, so from treatment, months. yeah, months treatment on Thursday, and then was drunk on Saturday. And so, in home. your body, there was no alcohol or drugs, so you could Nothing. not pick up because there was no physical craving. No, I, no physical I, craving. I know I'm like a word splitter, but I hate when people say I was craving alcohol. I'm like, you actually weren't. You were having a mental obsession. You can only physically crave something that your body is withdrawing from. You were not withdrawing from alcohol or drugs because it had been out of your system. And what I have written down on 35 is stone cold sober just before we drink. That that I remember when Kevin told me that you're 100% sober before you pick up the drink. That is really uncomfortable because that means yeah. I'm picking up what kills me with no excuses other than my mind told me it was okay. Yeah. Which is mental obsession. Yep. Yeah. Yes, I, I often felt, you know, that my mind was trying to kill me. Was, yeah, it, it was. I, was. I mean, yeah. think about the reason why people, when they kill themselves with a gun, they shoot themselves in the head. They don't shoot themselves in the heart. It's, right. They want to shut up their head. Yeah. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he, of what is he thinking? So it wasn't just friends and family who were baffled by that. I was baffled by that, you know, that experience of how the hell did I find myself back in this position again? You know, cause before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had periods of time where I tried to stop drinking and in some cases was successful for short term. I was also confused about drugs and alcohol and thought if I didn't use drugs, I could drink or if I, you know, so I was trying all those control mechanisms, but um, I was also, you know, baffled by why did this keep happening to me? Will you speak a little bit about, um, I feel like there was a period of time in your sobriety where you 
believe the lie that you didn't need AA anymore. Yeah, that 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 happened to me for sure. Um, has that's happened to me a couple of times. And um, you know, what do you think happens when that happens? Yeah. So uh, a, a really strong experience with with that was when I first moved to Maryland, and you know, um, somebody close to me in my life started started drinking again after being sober for around eight or nine years. And it was really difficult. Um, you know, I blamed Alcoholics Anonymous and um, I was isolated. It like all happened at the same time. Moved, he started drinking, yeah. I was by myself. Um, and it was, I think that really subtle, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's a soft, sweet right it's not like a neon sign that says jenny you should drink right you'd be like that's a bad thing to say to me right right it was the soft sweet voice that felt like it was the right thing to do to take care of myself at the time yeah of course it was the worst thing and i ended up in you know a few years of hell Um, yeah because you can be in hell sober without putting a a drink in your body because you you don't have the solution and so you're just you have no solution. You have no alcohol or drugs and you have no spiritual solution. And that is, I think for me, the, the most funerals I've been to in AA are suicides in AA of sober yeah. people. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think I found temporary false solutions like work at the time and, yeah. and some other things that I, I won't, cause we need like another few hours. I'm here so to go grateful that. though, that you came back to your path because the amount of people that you help today and like you're one of the people in my army that I trust that if I was in a, a really scary situation and I needed your help, there would not even be a doubt in my mind that I could ask you for help. Yeah. Likewise. And that's because of the path. That's because of the work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so grateful. Once, once he sobered up, I realized, oh shit, he's not my problem. <laughs> Sorry for swearing. No, no, this <laughs> but... is a swearing podcast. We okay, okay. Swear here. <laughs> okay. Rental advisement. All right. Um, I uh, actually yeah. do have to check that box every time. We're explicit. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's good to know. <laughs> One of my sponsors, Amy, told me I should clean up, clean up my mouth like I cleaned up my life. So I'm still working on that. Progress, <laughs> not perfection. Too, you know what? I would rather swear and be kind than be nasty and have perfect language. So there you go. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. I love Jim. Jim, Jim, Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see except for a nervous disposition, so a bit of anxiety. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum- 37, right? We were all like, oh my God, I'm too young. Right. He drank for two years. Right. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Um, On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. so in, in no way do I relate to any of what Jim has, has experienced so far. <laughs> I was not a man of 35 with like, you know, wife and any of that stuff. So, but I love that because there's so much about Jim, Jim's experience that I relate to. And I love that he's so different for me in terms of like what was happening in his life at the time. Um, we told him that we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. And so this is really important for me because one of my sponsors told me, 
that, uh, you know, a beginning is not enough. It's a good start, but it's not enough. It's like the one, two, three step shuffle that, yeah. you know, they that is one and two and three, the, the problem, the solution, the answer, but he can yes. do the work. So he just exactly. had information and you can die with information. Yes. That is so true. <clears throat> um, his family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking, which can't imagine a better breeding ground for resentment. <laughs> All yeah, went right. well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So that, That's right, it. exactly here. He didn't right. move forward with the steps clearing away the wreckage. Yeah. Yep. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. So like learning more and more about himself and, and his relapses. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. So what's so important to me here is that he had all the facts. He knew he was an alcoholic. He knew what was in store for him if he kept drinking. He understood how his alcoholism was working and that there was a solution. He had all of that information. And then I have dot, dot, dot at the bottom of my page. And when you turn it to the next page, it says, yet he got drunk again. All four of my sponsors that were 10 plus years of sobriety could quote the big book to me. I hear their voices when I read certain pages, you know, uh, um, you know, about it being smashed. Oh, you know, like, it doesn't matter. The information is just information. You can die with, with the knowledge of this book. You can memorize the book and quote it and die an alcoholic death. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a, a knowledge, self-knowledge, uh, consequences. Right, that's what they always said. Self-knowledge yes. is not our problem. Yes, yes. Or our that's solution. Why I, that's why I love Jim's story. Because yes. he really brings it home for us. All right, we asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated. So he's resentful, yeah. Exactly, he's, really, he's got a resentment that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Also a little bit of self-pity in there, which yeah, I poor, poor relate Jim. to and struggle with. Yes, yeah. poor, poor Jim. Uh, I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, very rational. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. So I, he has great reason to be there. He's there for business. He's hungry. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, more justification, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years, even more justification. In fact, he'd eaten there many times during the months that he was sober. So for me, that's just of this building sense of lowering down my guard of Oh, I've, I've eaten here sober before. I'm hungry. I have a you can hear here. in his mind how he's angling the truth enough to yeah. make it acceptable for him to go to this place. In case anyone ever asked him, why are you there? He has these five reasons. These are the reasons why I'm here. I can get a customer. I've been here before. I'm fine. And I used to do that with everything. I, was, I always had a prepared argument in case you stopped me and asked me what I was doing, which meant I was very intentional about it, which is what he was doing too. Yeah. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. <laughs> this next paragraph is in italics, which 
everyone tells me is, is means it's really important. So really it's important. <laughs> underlined and highlighted. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Wait a minute, okay? I have read this hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. I'm not kidding. I have never seen that he ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk and another sandwich and a glass of milk. I thought that the second sandwich and a glass of milk was with whiskey. He ordered a second sandwich and no, a milk with no whiskey in it to prove he was capable of sitting there without drinking. He ordered two meals and who drinks two glasses of milk? <laughs> and then he drinks two glasses of milk, two sandwiches. Then he has a third glass of milk with whiskey. Then he has a fourth, ew. He drinks yeah. four glasses of milk. He drinks a gallon of milk. Jim, how did he not throw up? I don't know. When I, I remember reading this early on and thinking that sounded so disgusting. And over my time, I think since having kids with warm bottle of milk, warm bottles can totally understand how whiskey and milk sounds like a, a good combination. But, you know, for him, it was, um, you know, for me, or what, what really stands out about this part is suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. There was nothing that Jim had that would that would be a defense against that thought. He just didn't have, because he'd only done those first three steps. He didn't have a relationship with higher power, hadn't cleared away the wreckage. Nothing was going to get, get in the way of that happening. So he made experiment, a decision based on a lie. Right, exactly. And, and so he didn't catch on fire after he had that shot of, or go like rob a bank. Right. So the experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey, poured it into more milk, milk, and that didn't bother me. So I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was this. I want commitment. that bumper sticker. Thus That's started one more. Ah. <laughs> I'm all about that. <laughs> Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge. This is also in italics. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea, the lie that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. And there's so much in that. You know, again, just reiterating for me, it's, uh, you know, I, oh, I really tried, the three big things for me were self-will, um, self-knowledge, and fear of the consequences. Those were like my three places that I operated from that I thought were the, the big mixture in the foundation that I needed for recovery. And it turns, <laughs> turns out that the, none of those worked for me. Um, they weren't enough. And of course, fear of the consequences is motivating. Knowledge is helpful. And, and so is willpower. I mean, we, we eventually get to exercise our, our will. But, um, but not until we clear out all of our crap. Yes. Um, but but for, for me as a, an alcoholic coming into AA, stopping drinking, and all of a sudden thinking those were going to be enough for me uh, was a real letdown and, and really quite terrifying because it meant that I was like dying in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous was what was happening for me. Yes. Whatever the price, precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? Um, and I'm going to stop at the end of this page. So I'm just going to read a little bit. Yeah, because you've got a one o'clock hard stop and yes. I don't want to get you to pass that. You may think this is an extreme case to us. It is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. 
We've sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there were always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, what, how could that have happened? How the hell did that happen? Right. In some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, and I call those like the fuckets. Yeah. Um, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness and anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we begin to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. I am unable to recall with sufficient force the memory of what I was really like when I was in the painful experience of what I was really like, you know, and that works for me if I break a leg or I have a baby, that's really positive. It's a helpful tool that I don't have to always remember in the exact same way, what it was like to break a leg or have a baby, but it works against me when it comes to my alcoholism because I'm a forgetter and I'm unable to recall what it was really like. That's not enough for me. Right. We only think about what alcohol did for us, not to us. We remember yes. how it made us feel better, but not what it actually did to us. I know yeah. you have to go. I love you so, so much. I am so grateful for your time and Thanks your sobriety and for staying here. I can't even tell you how much it means to have someone ahead of me that I can look up to and trust and respect. It's awesome. Well, I love you. Thank you for asking me. I send love people, to send people else. my way and get I your will. husband on the schedule. He keeps telling me he's going to do it and he's not doing it. So he's bad, bad boy. I, I will tell him. Okay. I love you. <laughs> All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. For any listeners who would like to get deeper insight into my story, I just released my memoir, Seconds and Inches. It was a dream of mine for decades to write my memoir. And while I do not believe in mixing money in AA, I just wanted to share with the world that I did this accomplishment and it can be found wherever you normally purchase books, paperback, audio, or digital. I wish you an awesome day. Thank you.